0: Hello, my name is Tucker Johnson and I am your host today as we experience NIMSY Live where we talk about the latest and the greatest translation, localization, internationalization, culturalization, and all that fun stuff global companies need to delight their international customers or at least to not piss them off too much. On this program, we like to have fun and we also like to talk about things that add value to our audience of globalization professionals. If anyone has an idea or a topic that they would like covered on the NIMSY Live program, make sure to let us know. Um, I'm eager to provide a platform to anyone with a good story or a good data set. So you can reach out to us at info at nimz.com or live at nimz.com, and we will get back to you. If you haven't already done so, make sure that you are following or subscribed to Nibbity Insights on your platform of choice. We're coming to you live on LinkedIn today. We also simultaneously broadcast on YouTube, Facebook, and X, formerly known as Twitter. Uh, One quick plug here before we get into the program. I wanted to let everybody know... The multilingual media influencer watch list or influencer issue is coming out. and for those of you that have been participating in this, we a multilingual magazine reached out to the industry and gave people an opportunity to nominate their favorite industry influencers and that list has been narrowed down to 150 frontrunners. So if you're on LinkedIn you can just go f- um, find a link to it on the multilingual page and fill out the survey. And vote for your favorite front runner here in the influencers watch list. The winners will be featured in an upcoming issue of Multilingual Magazine in 2024. So there's still time to do that, but the survey closes tomorrow. So make sure that you're you're on top of that. So, without further ado let's get into the topic today today we are topic talking about what else artificial intelligence and the ramifications it has on our industries so a uh, few things are as controversial these days as the tension between ai and humans when it comes to translation Some people see it as the Holy Grail, while others demolish it as the devil. But in Gabriel Fairman's opinion, who is our guest today, it is not necessarily a matter of machines or humans, but how to get a scenario where machines and humans can work together. In this live stream, we're going to be exploring exactly what this looks like and how it can change people's minds over what AI is and what it isn't, which brings me to my guest today, Mr. Gabriel Fairman. Gabriel has been the founder and CEO of BureauWorks since 2005. He is a passionate linguist and technologist who loves to cook, breathe, and spend time with his family. Welcome, my fellow breathing aficionado. How are you today?
1: (laughs) Good, Tucker. Thanks so much for... Uh, having me here pleasure and doing doing very well how are you
0: very good thank you I'm excited to talk about this with I mean of course everyone's been talking about AI um, for the last months you know it's been the topic of the the decade I would say and it it will remain that way for quite some time but I'm excited to talk about it with you because you're coming from a perspective of uh, technology the company founder. And before we get into it uh, too much, why don't you tell our audience today a little bit about yourself and a little bit about Bureau Works, the company that you run.
1: Sure, my pleasure. So um, I was born and raised in Brazil, grew up speaking Portuguese, English, and Spanish, picked up um, over my college years and later years, a little bit of Mandarin, French, and Italian. So I've always loved languages. My mother was a translator, Started out um, my career after getting fired from my corporate job. I kind of took an oath to myself that I wouldn't work again um, for anybody else other than me. That was way back in the early 2000s. And that's what prompted me to start the company. Started off as a translation agency. And I thought I I would be dealing with languages. But the agency grew very quickly. I realized that it wasn't really as much of a language thing as it became a management thing and even more so information management. That led me to dive into technology as the solution to my management woes. And that was, that's been a 20 year journey, transforming the agency first into a fully tech enabled agencies that was back in around 2015. Mm-hmm and um, and then fully into a translation management system or translation platform. I would say we've been transitioned into that model ever since 2021, more or less.
0: Yeah, and it's not, it. it it's always an interesting story for me to hear, but you, it's certainly not a unique story that you have, which is you came into this industry because a love of languages, but ended up becoming a manager and a technologist basically, and probably not getting, to translate as much as you thought you would when you came into this industry. Um, And BureauWorks is a household name. You know, people have heard about it before. Um, Tell us a little bit about the the technology behind it. Is it a TMS? Is it a terminology management system? Is it an integrator? Someone who's never heard of Bureauworks before.
1: Yeah, it's it's a TMS um, primarily with a lot of um focus around automation and productivity right and i would say a lot of it comes from the genesis of um our company I, I think we there's an interesting combination that happens when you put service and software together um the service is all about solving problems and i think that's the mindset of service it has to be at least right. uh, good good service is about creating solutions, whatever they may be for whatever problems are in front of us. Software is a lot more, uh, in my opinion, it's a lot more standardized. It's about producing something that is going to be as universally applicable, applicable as possible to a given use case. And um, I think our our pain around software really was always that, okay, this software can be pretty good, but it solves one little piece of a puzzle. And I'm gonna have to now find another thing that solved another piece of the puzzle and our thinking was always in my opinion um always um use case first the software comes in to basically clean up the mess that we created in the first place right. and i think over the years i kind of shifted that mindset to well if you architect software in a, in a smart way maybe the mess isn't there to begin with so maybe there's a lot less to clean up And so that's, our our, our software began um, first as an automation, business automation engine, focusing on automating LQA reports, then focusing on on generating data out of those LQA reports. And we realized, okay, we can generate all this data around LQA reports, Oh, all of a sudden, oh, we can place jobs more intelligently than just through, oh, this translator was once upon a time rated as good by someone who tested them in such and such five extent. years ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we realized, okay, we're, we can make better decisions. Interesting. And we started to test that, see the outcomes were much better, much more sustainable. And then we began to get into content as well. And we're like, Oh, now we have the content, we have the people, we can make those matches very seamlessly And that ultimately led us to build out um, the project management components as well, so we could generate costs, so we could generate payables. And then um, last but not least, the most important part, in my opinion, which is the translation productivity environment, or a translation editor, as you would call it. Um, So it's a full-stack software as far as translation goes. and really it was built around solving, not just like a particular aspect of the problem, like not sticking to a lane, but really thinking about what do, what's required to produce like sustainable, scalable localization from A to Z. Well,
0: and like so many, so much technology in our industry is really driven by client needs, right? And And you mentioned it, it's like developing language technology is just an exercise in evolution. Because every program, every client program has little subtle nuances to it that, you know, might break the whole technology. So you need to create an additional module or you need to create some more functionality for this. And over time, the technology just kind of takes on a life of its own. And, of course, that's influenced by, you know, outside developments as well, wanting to leverage the latest technologies out there, whether it's machine translation or now artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's kind of where I'd like to pick your brain on today on um, artificial intelligence, the effect it's having on our industry. First, let's, you know, take it at a 30,000 foot level, you know, how big, and this is the question on everyone's mind. I don't, it's not my favorite question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. How big of a threat, <laughs> I hate that word, but how big of a threat is artificial intelligence to the language services industry?
1: Threats. It's interesting you ask that question because I don't. I, I don't ever think of it as a threat. Yeah. I think of it as an opportunity, a there huge opportunity. But but I agree. I mean, if you want to make sure if, if things staying the same is the goal, then it's a huge threat. But I like it. <laughs> well, I like things right? to change. Yeah. So.
0: <laughs> if things are staying, if, you, if things are, things staying the same is the goal, then it is a huge threat. I like that. So oh, it, it's going to be changing our industry. Our industry is not. Not um, unknown, change is not unknown to our industry. It's been changing for a long time. Do you do you see AI as having as big of an impact? Let's say as machine translation has had on our industry.
1: My opinion is that it's going to be way bigger, yeah. way deeper. Okay. I think machine translation. My this is again. These are just my personal opinions. I don't think there's necessarily a right or wrong here. But uh, machine translation was change coming from within it was basically researchers in the language field technology owned and operated by translation agencies by um like it, it didn't become nearly as widespread as for instance something like gpt or like large language models are becoming and are tending to become so i think the key difference is that with machine translation i think in general, very very quickly people arrived to this idea that it was okay, but not good enough. It wasn't really a threat. Like maybe it could improve certain processes and diminish edit times if you're working in, 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 in post-MT editing scenarios, things like that. But for the outside person, it wasn't like kind of like, oh, so you mean I don't have to go through a translator. That wasn't something that was in people's minds. And even in the current state of things, I mean, I, I've talked to a lot of people that are from completely outside the industry and their their perspective on it is often, well, translation is a solved problem now. Um, yeah. Language models will take care of it. And for that, it's a non-issue. It's like, oh, oh, wait, wait, what about nuances? What about terminology? What, those are like aftermath thoughts for a lot of people that are coming at it from a very different perspective so i think for the and first the thing time, is
0: they're okay. not wrong right <laughs> they're not entirely wrong i mean maybe their arguments or their beliefs are unnuanced, as you as you say but from their perspective if it's a solved problem if they have a problem and from their perspective their problem is solved well that's a problem for us because we can't help a client who doesn't
1: have a problem exactly yeah, I think that that, that it, 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 yeah, you 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 summarize it and I, and I think that's the first time I've been seeing things like this like uh with and I think about it all the time like I look at some of these um I've generated a few AI dubbed videos using different kinds of software and I'm I'm honestly like blown away from the results obviously like I'm cherry picking I'm I'm not you know talking in deep technical lingo or mumbling I'' I'm, 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 I'm working with the tool right I, I want to see what it can produce based on a good input and it's very uh, in, impacting for me to see that and um, when I put in myself in the shoes of okay, okay so there's an exact seeing this five minute clip that's automatically you know within minutes generated, dubbed, synced yeah. in German, Japanese, Hindi, Turkish, whatever languages are available in for that particular tool, for instance, it's mind blowing. Like it's stuff that would have taken, you know, maybe a week to turn around and just gets done in minutes. And and it's pretty accurate and it's, it's pretty, pretty, good. pretty good. And it's lip synced and it's like, how is this happening? So it is like that when you get into the weeds, you'll find the exceptions, you'll find the fails, you'll find the issues, but for like, a world that now has kind of like a 30 second attention span
0: (laughs) and you're being generous sir (laughs) you are being generous giving 30
1: seconds and making decisions based on those 10 seconds 15 seconds that starts to create in my opinion much more of a challenge in paradigms than before and then basically the way i see it like from a cost perspective, for most enterprises, whatever they spend on localization has typically been fringe, minimal. Even like lo- companies that spend millions of dollars, when you compare it to a year, when you compare it to their top line revenue, it's it's a very small amount of spend uh, in localization. It's, it's typically been, in for the most part, a n- needed cost that's mm-hmm. not, goes for the most part unquestioned, sure you know goes through cost management optimization processes procurement all that stuff and get squeezed sure but still from the premise that it's important and necessary right i think that premise is going to begin to be more and more questioned and it's going to be harder for people to challenge to, to like debunk those challenges how it like with machine translation. With machine, machine translation, it's super easy to show these epic fails, to you know, show a few case studies of how brands lost hundreds of thousands, if not millions, from like epic machine translation uh, debacles and all this stuff. And and with large language models, particularly like if they're being used by people who know what they're doing, right. uh, you can produce very, very powerful results. Right. And, um, and And I think, the good thing, I, I guess, if if the goal is to avoid change, the good thing is that, in my opinion, these changes will take years to percolate. I don't think change is, even though the tech may be there in a perfect case application. I think it takes a long time for companies in all kinds of industries and verticals to adapt and adjust and adopt. The
0: adoption is um, going to take a little. No, no one yeah. wants to be. No one wants to be the first failed case study. Right. No one wants to be the cautionary tale that everybody else learns from. Right. And I've kind of like my my and it is speculation. I'm not going to bring up data to support it right now. But just from talking to different folks in the industry, I feel like in 2023, a lot of folks were hesitant to invest in localization programs and solutions and building out programs because they wanted to see everyone kind of wants to see well what's going to happen with AI and so they don't want to build out an old program now just for a year or two later everything to be driven by AI and People have been watching for a while now, and people are starting to play play around with it. What have What have you seen talking to clients, client side localization folks out there? Are they jumping in head first? Are they dipping their toes in the water? Um, what's the sentiment out there in the industry?
1: It's a great question. I think, again, I also don't have data on this. It's just anecdotal. But in my experience so far, it's been very much a uh, I I would cluster companies in certain camps. So I would say there are companies that are very pro-AI, pro-technology, typically technology companies that have already, you know, maybe ever since February 23, have already have like an AI company-wide mandate in place. Maybe even have an AI um, officer, for instance, and and know what they're doing. Have their own GPT instances, and are applying are looking for like use cases all over that where they can apply it. And typically, localization is one of them. And they're not asking; they're telling. They're, right. they're they're not asking their localization managers to try something out with AI. They're basically informing them that their programs <laughs> have to be leveraged by AI by X amounts, telling them that their budget needs to go down by 50%, whatever, they're giving them very clear directions. And it's not a, it's it's not a, a matter of opinion. That's just the, the company mandate.
0: And what do you think about that? What do you, how do you feel about that? Uh, is that the right decision from upper management, upper, upper managers to mandate, you will be using AI? Um, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. It,
1: I think, I, I think every company is its own culture, its own thing. Um. I personally don't like <laughs> not that anyone's
0: going to listen to our opinions anyways. <laughs> I mean, it's just for the sake of conversation, right? Yeah.
1: For the sake of conversation, I wouldn't like someone to tell me how to do things in that way. I think it sucks honestly, like to, to be given that kind of directive. Um, and I think the chances of things failing increase a lot because, there's not an alignment of goals and expectations and things like that. And I think things typically need, especially when we're talking about this big a transition, I think a phased approach tends to work better, trying it out in certain cases with certain situations and and exploring where it does well, where it doesn't. And honestly, like I think that level of harshness and application um, is not necessarily conducive to good results in general um well it's
0: it's like starting with the solution and it's yeah, like you don't exactly. want to start with the solution you want to start with the challenge or start with the problem and then build exactly. the solution right? right but saying we need to input, we need to be using ai is like okay but what for right mm-hmm. what, what what's the problem that we're trying to solve here and i think that's that's the conversation we're having as as an industry is what is the challenge like everyone knows like everyone can feel it in their bones ai is going to help us solve challenges and the question is where where are the challenges where's the low-hanging fruit where do we start right
1: well yeah i mean if we're gonna go there i I just just to finish the the before we go there because that I, i i love where you're taking this but i would also put it the other end of the spectrum is companies that have uh, anti-AI mandate. We see that as well. So it's like you will not oh. use AI in any form or capacity or you're going to get fired. Yep. And it's basically – so you see that other end as well. I would say most companies are falling somewhere in the middle where they're like dabbling and like saying, hey, have you st- what have you done with AI? Have you seen something? Have you heard something? But still in a very kind of like stepping on eggs kind of – perspective that's where i see the majority of people that i talk to in it's like i'm interested i'm curious but i'm hesitant but i'm watching but i'm trying you know it's like this this phase where you have like plausible deniability it's not like you're like going full diving head in you're also not diving head out you're kind of in a place where you you know you have answers that please both um you have your
0: little uh, when someone asks you what are you doing with ai you've got your stock elevator pitches well you know we've formed a committee to investigate (laughs) the potential feasibility of (laughs) and you know it satisfies the the suits and in the meantime you don't have to commit yourself
1: correct and that's where i would say most people are um as far as the the people i talk to at least but you know the when you talk about the low-hanging fruit for me no, I've always been very empirical about stuff in general, and um, I don't like the word AI. I don't like the idea. I don't even like anything artificial. Uh, I, I like I like to think of myself as a more natural person, if possible. So I, I I have a problem with the word. I never really thought about it from as like an AI thing. Mo- mostly, like I've always been fascinated with large language models, even way before GPT. We've been thinking about what you can do with large language models, and our challenge was really that it was relatively hard to to build them, to configure them, and mo- even harder to get good, sustainable uh, responses. So uh, the jump that we saw from GPT-2 to 3, for instance, 3.5 was huge, right? It, and um, it really, like, blew our minds just from a qualitative perspective not even regarding translation just like the kinds of responses that you could get the kind of flexibility and prompts, the kinds of hints you know emulation of uh creativity emulation of thoughts emulation like for the first time I was like okay this thing seems like it it maybe is putting two and two together even though it's not right but it seems like it is yeah um and that led us to okay let's let's let and this was way back, in November 22 when GPT-3 was released we first tried to test it as a source of truth and it was really simple for us to say look this thing is computationally super expensive it's not that much better than machine translation so we we very quickly we tossed that aside as like a translation possibility um then We started to test it out. Okay, what what does it do when working with machine translation as an extra layer? Okay, now we're starting to see a little bit interesting things being caught, like Mm -hmm. some contextual things that were missed by machine translation. We were able to see those things being caught but um still you know nothing crazy nothing that would like blow anybody's mind and say oh you know translators are done for or anything like that it was like you could still find epic fails you could still find situations where it just like was wasn't good enough and so on but what really changed things for us was realizing okay the 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 key difference is this has the ability to emulate contextual awareness by that it's able to under it's able to at least simulate the understanding of meaning and that's a big departure from where we've been in the past i would say 20 at least my 20 years i can't speak for the previous 20 years before them, but i've been doing this for 20 years and for 20 years my brain had been formatted by syntax right so it's you know the translation memory it's Either a 50% match or it's a 30% match or it's 75 or 85, but it's always syntax. And let's say, you know, if you have the sentence, John has gone to the market and John went to the store, those sentences are semantically very similar, syntactically very different. You're not gonna get any leveraging from that. You're not gonna be able to learn anything from those two different sentences typically. And all of a sudden we're like, a light went off. We're like, oh, okay, now we can look at these sentences from a semantic perspective and see that they are indeed similar. Um, and we can learn from them and we can establish correlations between them. And that can change how the translator interacts with the editor, right? The, mm-hmm. the interactions, in my opinion, were very robotic. Like, oh, this is my sentence and I'm placing this sentence in this bin, not in bin number one, not in bin number two. And bin number one doesn't mix with bin number two. Mm-hmm. When, when you open up the semantic, idea, all of a sudden, you can put it in bin number 1.35, like somewhere in between, and it can leverage a little bit from the bin above, the bin below, and it can understand correlations, make much more sophisticated contextual um, correlations, right? And that open. that's what I think 2023 has been about for us and is really okay. How can we make the translation process more conversational without, at no point were we thinking about not having people involved. It was always, right. how can we involve people in a more effective capacity? Um, and, and that to me is super interesting because then the challenge changes, right? I don't care, honestly, like I, I know that at some point the answer is going to be crazy hallucinatory, or whatever people want to call it, but that's okay. You still have someone looking at it. What matters for me from a statistical perspective is that maybe in 95% of the segments, one or two little changes are going to be good enough for the segment to be perfect.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and, 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 and that is already a huge win. In, in my opinion, again, without trying to like completely change the industry, it's like, Oh, this opens a way for a different way of working and interacting with knowledge yeah
0: for the translator right for the translator and i remember i remember you talking a lot about a a lot of these concepts at local world down in silicon valley and you ended up winning the process innovation challenge right Mm -hmm. yeah you, you took the the title home um, for 2023 so i have got a champion on the the show today um tell us tell us about the program that you developed I, i've been looking for it here the um B, bwx generative language engine translation smells
1: that's a part of it yeah the so bwx that's is our platform okay bwx is the platform um,
0: yeah tell us about it
1: and it, uh, the the translation editor you can integrate it with um GPT 3.5 and 4 for different operations and we have an entire AI framework that you can turn on or off as needed for your specific client for specific content you can also control it in the editor but the basic idea is that there's like an accelerator and a break the accelerator is a, a context sensitive translation so a context sensitive translation means that you're looking at a translation memory and a glossary and a machine translation, Mm -hmm. not as separate things, but as context. So it's like, everything becomes context. Any and like, so like, let's say for instance, in uh, a glossary, in a typical translation scenario, let's say, uh, if you're translating you as usted, that's not context, that's a specific database entry that two equals usted. If you're working as context, you equals usted instead of two means register is formal rather than informal, right? Okay. There are inferences that can be made on a simple glossary entry. Um, same goes with machine translation, same goes with translation memory. And the idea is we can look at this context with dynamic weighting. So understand what's more relevant and less relevant based on any number of factors, like who entered that information? When was it entered? Was it machine generated? Was it human generated? How many humans have accepted this before? So really have a much deeper idea of relevance than just it's there or it's not there. Suggest something that's plausible to the translator every single time. So there are no more fuzzy matches. Every time the translators, the the, the suggestion that they're getting, is a plausible suggestion. It may not be the way they would write, but it's a plausible suggestion. It's grammatically coherent. It reflects the meaning of of the source, at least from a best attempt perspective. And it tries to respect the bearings laid out by the translation memory and the glossary. So and, for, mm-hmm.
0: for all intents and purposes, you say there are no more fuzzy matches, Yeah. but no from a practical standpoint, it, from a translator standpoint, I should say, it's, it can very much kind of be treated like a fuzzy match in that a fuzzy match is like, hey, here's something that's probably pretty close. Correct. You need to review it and edit it.
1: Yeah, that's a instead of everything. There are no more fuzzy matches. Everything is a fuzzy match. (laughs) Yes,
0: yes, exactly. And the fuzzy match is leveraging artificial intelligence to loop in a bunch of different contexts from a bunch of different sources that otherwise would not have been feasible for a human, because a human can have access to glossaries and style guides and translation memories and machine translation and previous translation and uh, you know all of these different things but they're not going to have the time to reference all of those correct and, but correct. that's and even that's if where they had AI the time
1: it's, it's too much information to go through right. and actually crunch consistently like let me perform a con- concordance search on every sentence every word in the sentence it's, it's crazy like yeah. you can't m- manually do that right um and again you wouldn't have the time and they wouldn't be paid for it but that's the beauty of it you're cross referencing so much more context very quickly.
0: And how are translators responding to this? um, Based upon your conversations and your. Well,
1: we have a lot of users, thousands of users and our users love it. They, 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 but again, (laughs) I would say our users are the minority of the translation community, in my opinion, They're, uh, they're they. They don't have an ideological problem with um the idea that we are leveraging large language models mm. um, so i wouldn't i can't talk i know that we have a lot of detractors there are a lot of people who sure, don't sure. don't appreciate the fact that we are leveraging large language models i've I've seen comments in some of my posts saying that uh, you know what we're doing is disgusting shameful <laughs> yeah. so there's a lot of judgment around even the idea of integrating large language models into the translation process um now our translators typically the, the ones using our platform they love the fact that they become so much more productive but they're willing to let go of a certain way of working that they've learned over sometimes 10 20 30 40 years mm-hmm. that's really hard to do yeah. um so i would say you know the the subset of translators that typically sign up for a tool they're more less ideologically driven more productivity and gain driven more agnostic as to the solution more focused on the result so they tend those people tend to love it
0: yeah and and i can empathize with the translators you know that went to school and took out student loans and studied to be a translator because they love translating you know this sentence to that sentence and using their brain and they didn't want to you know be using AI and, you know, efficiency was not efficiency. I don't think is taught as much or valued as highly amongst translators as quality or effectiveness.
1: Right? I agree a hundred percent. No, and, and like my mother was a translator all her life. And, um, you know, for me, I, I used to help her sometimes doing rough drafts when I was like 14 and giving her, trying to learn and, and help. And for her, it was very clear, like, there was there was her way of saying something and then all the wrong ways of saying the yeah. same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, exactly. and, and, and honestly, most, even in English, most really good copywriters think like that as well. It's like, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's saying something, but it's not saying that in the most elegant, the most sophisticated way. And if it's not doing that, it's not what I'd like. Mm-hmm. And I see that. I see, like, how much authorship is important for a translator. And I I translate myself a lot with a tool, um, almost daily, even just a little bit. Maybe I would say at least a few words here and there. It's part of my demo process. And personally, what I love is that you could argue from an authorship perspective that it's detracting. It's taking away because it's already giving you a fuzzy match always. Mm -hmm. But I find that personally very liberating because it's like, okay, so now I don't have to worry about what's in the TM, what's in the gloss. That's all injected there. It's all there for me mm-hmm. to play around with. And now I can think about where I wanna build from there. To optimize um, it. Exactly. Right. And, and if you ask me as a translator, like I don't, I, if, some, if there's something that I hated was we're working with fuzzy matches and looking at the difference and trying to, you know, pass yeah. over the difference. Why is it a
0: fuzzy match?
1: Exactly. <laughs> and, I mean, that, my,
0: when you're working with fuzzy matches that you see a fuzzy match, you're basically like, all right, now my job is to figure out why this is a fuzzy match. And then Correct. switch that part of the sentence. Correct.
1: Correct. And by the by the time I was done with that, my bandwidth for that sentence was 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 done. I was ready to move on to the next. Exactly. I couldn't take it to the next level and and activate a deeper intellectual faculty and think. Okay, is this said in the best discourse possible for my given audience? Is what's what's this what's this underlying about my brand? What's this underlying about my product? Are there any negative connotations in here that I want to think about? Uh, how does this correlate with something that I translated previously? All that bandwidth is not necessarily gone, but it's compromised. Well,
0: that and that bandwidth can be time and that bandwidth can just be like mental f- mental energy, right? Yep. Because I, I'm, I'm not a translator, but I write content, whether I'm writing reports or even, heck, just emails, right? I'm type, 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 type all day long is what I do. And what I've realized is using generative AI to, um, write, help me write stuff is that let's say I'm writing a proposal. It's great for writing proposals, right? Mm -hmm. And it's going to give me something that I can't deliver to a potential client. Not if I want to win the contract, but it's giving me something that I can then go and tweak and perfect and optimize and if I had to have written the whole thing from scratch, my mm-hmm. brain would just be tired. Like I wouldn't, exactly. I wouldn't have the mental faculty to go in and perfect it. But it gives me like a nice foundation, eventually, or sometimes I should say, it gives me like a nice foundation that then I can just go in and kind of make my own. And I can imagine it's it's kind of the same concept you're talking about from a translator perspective.
1: It is. I I, I think you're talking about, and I, I I agree with you. I mean the the. Structural foundation that it can provide you in a contract or a proposal, something that gives you like a backbone is really powerful. I, it's something. It's a use case that I really like with large language models. Uh, we're talking about more of foundation at, at, a, at, a, at a at a more granular level, right? The sentence itself yeah. has a foundation, but it's the same. Anal- it's analogous. It, it, it allows, in my opinion, the translator to go further. But and the, the what the beauty of it is. It's like any tool, right? If you work with it, it can be really useful. If you work against it, it can be a pain in your butt, right? So if if I'm like resisting every single feed and I'm deleting that fuzzy match and rewriting everything from scratch, I'm gonna hate it, it's gonna be terrible. Yeah. But if I choose to work with it, and that's why it's such a, in my opinion, such a, cra- like in the end, the most central concept that we're talking about is authorship and agency. That's really what it all comes down to in my opinion. And I think it's very threatening, you know, when you when you asked about um, the initial question, like, is this a threat? I think it feels like a threat. It definitely feels that way. Like, it's threatening my authorship because it's already giving me something. I'm working. It's like I'm working. I'm no longer responsible for the rough draft. Right. If, right. if you ask me, I love that because I think the beauty of writing, at least the that what I learned over the years is, is drafting is that's that's what makes good writing. Like if I'm able to write a fresh draft and throw it away and write a second draft and throw that away. And by the time you know I'm in my fifth iteration, it'll start to feel and look like writing. So that, that to me is my writing process. So I don't care so much about the initial drafts. I care about like how it works out in the end. How it right? gets so, to, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I don't care that I didn't come up with the original feed. I'm worried about the overall coherence of the text I'm worried about whether it delivers uh, feeling emotion that it's meant to deliver whether it delivers the clarity whether it delivers the 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 precision the accuracy and every kind of text has to deliver different aspects or combinations of these things right so um so in my for my feeling it's all good but I know that it's threatening because a lot of people don't think of writing from a more editorial perspective they think of it more from a craftsmanship perspective and it's yeah. like i want to be able to choose this particular word i want to be i want the one hitting the keyboard i want to feel that word coming out out of my then yeah it's a pain uh because it's not gonna it's not gonna do that it's gonna it, it, it like it, it short circuits all of that process and gives you something okay to work with and what's crazier is the learning capability too because what i'm used to with um Uh, Translation memory, for instance, and glossaries, is that sometimes I would have to fix something in a given document again and again and again and again, or do a global change. And with AI, the capability that a large language model has to learn from a given change that you made, and depending on how you have this set up, for instance, in, in our engine, you can essentially create very customized engines so, based on content type, based on particular clients, based on tone. So, you could have like a formal engine versus an informal engine, a marketing engine versus a legal engine, a good mood engine versus a bad mood engine. You can create these knowledge structures and it adapts very quickly over your choices. So, what I appreciate from an authorship perspective is this dialogue. It's like I'm not working, I don't feel like I'm working alone anymore. I feel like I'm interacting with something. And to me, that's pleasant. Again, for a lot of people, that's a pain in the butt. They don't want to interact with anything particular, particularly something that's non-human. But um, I appreciate it because, uh, like I said, I appreciate more the finer stuff about writing than the actual grunt work. But I know that a lot of people take pleasure, pride, and even, I would say, um identity over that, yeah. and I, I can, I, I can, I can, I can respect that.
0: Yeah. And it's like, to me, it's kind of moving translation from, from an art form to a more practical workflow. Right. And if you're someone that really, then as a whole, right. And, and I think it removes
1: the craftsmanship, but I still see it as even more as a, of an art form.
0: Then, but but my... you're, yeah, and because you, you're very much, you're, I, I see your point too, and I'm not arguing your point. Because your point is the art happens in the end product. And what, what gets you there isn't as important as what you're able to create at the end. Right. Um, but what you call grunt work, I think a lot yeah. of people it, see yeah. that. as their you're like sculpting, their... right, you're
1: no longer using a chisel to sculpt; you're using uh, like a jackhammer.
0: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I, I think that's kind of where where people can um,
1: yeah, disagree. Yeah. I, I, I can relate to that for sure.
0: Yeah. And so, from your bureau works is a technology company, a um, language technology company um there's um so we have technology companies in our industries we have language services companies translator you know translation companies we have end clients where do you think these advancements in 2024 we've got 12 months ahead of us where is it going to have the most profound effect is it going to be in the technology um space the tms space is it going to be in the lsp space or is it going to be on the client side all of the above
1: i don't know yeah um, is,
0: that's um, a solid answer <laughs> that's an honest answer
1: <laughs> i mean i really don't i think uh our like marketing strategy in 2023 was very much focused on the the three different groups that you identified translators agencies and and buyers and the um, it was also surprising for us like for me, for instance, from a marketing propositional perspective, if you tell me that I can double my income with a given tool, it's a no-brainer that I'll switch to the tool or try, at least try it out. Yeah. For most translators, it's very, very, very far from a no-brainer. Like yeah. they took a long time to arrive at the, the their translation tool of choice. They took a long time to sediment their working methodology they took a long time to get where they are and they're not changing unless they have like a A very clear like foot up the throat you know and it's like they have to yeah and it and that honestly was like a reality check for me because i i'm very like i like tools i like to explore tools i like to change the way i work i like to that that's part of what keeps me going. I mean, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing after 20 years if I didn't find it exciting and interesting. And what makes it exciting is the change. So I like that. But I noticed that for a lot of people, it's a different set of motivations. It's about stability, it's about predictability, it's about reliability, it's about safety, It's different kinds of um, um, set of motivations, right? So that for me was a, rea- a reality check. And I still that is going to i I still think that's going to continue over 2024 um and and even for for agencies i think uh it's the same conceptual problem in the sense that most agencies their dna is where they're really really good at keeping clients happy that's any agency that wants to survive has to be very good at it Whatever that takes, whatever that means,
0: whatever that takes,
1: whatever tool, whatever process you want me to hand deliver this job, I'll hand deliver the job. You want me to email it, I'll email it. Want to fax it, I'll fax it. I've
0: I've jumped on my motorcycle and hand delivered (laughs) equipment to clients on site before. Yeah, I haven't
1: had it, didn't have such a a beautiful perspective on a motorcycle, but definitely driven (laughs) to places to hand drive. So, yeah. It, and 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 it is what it takes, right? It is what it takes, and you know, you and you do that, you open exceptions everywhere, from a pricing perspective, from a process perspective, from a tech perspective, and and the same goes for your translators. Like, oh, this translator is very amazing, but they only work in their tool. You can work on your tool. You can work on no tool. You can do whatever it takes. That's yeah. in, at least in my uh, opinion, that's what it takes a great agency to succeed. And, and even that, and in that needs larger, not
0: going away. Right. The technology, this is one thing that I always say is clients want a shoulder to cry on or a throat to choke when something goes wrong and technology cannot provide that.
1: Exactly. And most people, I think in general, they don't want, I make an analogy to medicine in the sense that most people, even if they have a pain, they don't want to change to make the pain go away. They want something that takes the pain away. Yeah, exactly. It's it's typically the... I don't the, want to change my diet. Give me a pill. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So, um, you know, the, the, the idea is I, I think most people aren't that bothered by the fact that maybe the solution isn't the most effective or the most sophisticated or whatever. As long as it works and, it, and I have my shoulder to cry on, I'm good. So I don't think uh, that there is as much heat as people would expect get um, on on agencies or freelancers or even the enterprise buyers, because from a value and this is just my hypothesis, but I still think that from a spent relative spend perspective, whatever people spend on localization is peanuts compared to what they spend on overall marketing, compared to what they spend on overall legal expenses. So they're like a lot chunkier use cases for people to go after from a, like a, a large language model leveraging perspective then translation itself. So I think that that keeps our space a little bit more cushioned and siloed so that even if there's like a lot of stuff going on in other and and this has already been the case like if you take a look at like
0: I was going to you know, say it's been like that for a while.
1: Right? Yeah, like if you take a look at like mining uh you know and the the self-driving trucks have been around mining for like 20 years. Like it's not a new thing to see self-driving trucks, but they take a long time. Like this idea of something that's self-driving, you don't see like self-driving TMSs frequently because it's a very small space to invest that level of energy, Yeah. right? And mining, you know, a single self-driving truck can like generate by itself, maybe a hundred million dollars a year where, yeah. you know, um, in, in 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 you're going to have a harder time <laughs> generating that level of return in our space. I think our space is a little bit, protected in that, in, in that regard. And I I don't think change is going to happen as fast as some people anticipate. And that's both a good thing and a bad thing. It's it, it goes back to again to this idea of threat. I think we're more insulated than some people give our industry credit for. And that could be good. It can be good.
0: Yeah. Um, I've been so
1: wrapped up in this, I've been neglecting
0: language models what's your what's your take on that um about the security and compliance that's
1: super interesting because there's like all kinds of issues right i mean when you look at it from a like even from a first from an ethical perspective how this stuff was generated and um where this content was grabbed from Mm -hmm. They, they have people um people's um opt in to use their content, to learn from their content. So I think that's a big consideration and, and that's going to be, I think, going to, that's that's very far from a solved issue. You can, yeah. New York times for instance, is suing open AI around it. And that's gonna be a big thing uh, that it really, again, it puts the large language models, I think, really open a very serious wound as far as authorship. And even like with this whole plagiarism scandal around universities and things like that, Same thing. It's like all of a sudden the the whole idea of authorship is very easily turned on its head and questioned and who did what.
0: Yeah. Especially because the engines need original human generated content to train on. Correct. So if let's just, you know, fast forward this 10 20 years if everyone's using large language models to write their content and no one's actually creating content anymore then how are the language models going to evolve i don't know correct i'm sure smarter people than than us have had these conversations or are having these conversations but that's For kind sure. of where my head goes when i start playing yeah, yeah, yeah. forward
1: yeah there's an argument around that that like there's even if you get to a scenario where large language models are producing a, a lot of the content, there is enough randomness in interactions, and there there are other ways for you to get to that like layer of human ingenuity. Um, but I think that's a whole other a whole conversation. Networks, but I yeah. but just going back to like the 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 issues, right? So there's like an ethical issue, um, and an authorship issue, and a copyright issue. Um, to me, that's outside my pay grade. That's not what I worry about. I worry about privacy. I worry about security. I worry about, you know, I'm, 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 I start from the premise that OpenAI and Microsoft are reliable, reputable companies that can be trusted. And again, I know a lot of people who don't start from the that premise. Right. I know people who only trust Web3 and think that Microsoft is the devil. And that's okay. You know, I, I respect these different perspectives, but I'm starting from that premise. So I'm starting from the premise that these companies are reputable and trustable. Um, the first thing I did before we delved into it was I I analyzed very, very carefully all of their privacy policies and all of their security policies. Mm-hmm. And they've evolved very significantly over the course of 2023. Interesting. Now, um, I think there's also a big difference between um, the privacy that you get when you're using their service as a paid user using, for instance, GPT's online interface versus when you're using API. That's the first thing for people to be aware of. Like I, For instance, I'm very wary about anything I type into ChatGPT. putting it into the I window. I assume yeah. that it's going to become... It's going to be trained, it's going to become public content, whether the prompt, whether the response. I have zero uh trust over that. And I think a lot of the scandals that we saw last year around um employees putting in company private information that then became public, stuff like that. That happened for the most part in the public uh in, in the chat yeah. interface space. And that generated an overall cloud of. Uh, doubt over safety in AI in general well it doesn't take much right.
0: with the new technology right It's like no. how many people have car accidents every single day but for, one self-driving for, car hits a deer in Michigan and it's in the other world. Correct. It, exactly
1: yeah it's 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 exact bias right exact exact same bias but um when you look at like the actual API privacy policies, uh, both Azure and OpenAI, they, they ensure in writing like in large letters. And I, I love the way Microsoft lays it out, by the way, because like they they have it in um, at the top of their privacy policy. Like they have a summary with like really clear like large letter bullet points. You don't have to like go into the blueprint to see what they're saying. And they're basically saying that your data is encrypted at rest. It remains stored for 30 days just for abuse monitoring purposes. You can even apply Uh, for an exception so that your data becomes stateless Um, it's not used for training purposes it's not used to retrain any other models Hmm. Um, it's not shared with any other entities so as far as like data privacy goes in my personal opinion again i'm not a data privacy expert but i am um, uh, let's say pretty detailed about it and in my opinion it, it, it it satisfies the need of most enterprise clients. And I and and I see enterprise clients in their own instances very frequently. And they these terms were designed. I mean, the whole revenue strategy around OpenAI and Microsoft is growing, their use cases with large companies. So they've designed these privacy policies so that they meet the standards of large companies that work under, you know, SOC 2, Type 2, and all other kinds of information security practices. So I think that there's a big like same idea with the self-driving cars. I think that there's a big myth around it. And then there's a reality where that the data, as long as it's shared via API is kept pretty safe. Hmm. Um, now, an additional thing is like in our case, for instance, we're never training any models. Uh, that's not how the learning takes place. The learning is always taking place contextually. So there, there's, a, there's a, an additional component where it's, like we're deliberately not training a model. So if the concern is like, are we training the model? No, there's no model being trained. The model is just being used to make uh, inferences based on text. So um, so yeah, I, I think in summary, I, from a personal perspective, I feel perfectly fine with any of my information flowing in and out of GPT. And then it's a matter, and but we're aware that different people feel different ways. That's why yep. the way we engineered it in BWX you can turn on AI or off for the entire account yep. that someone holds, or you can turn it on or off for a given type of content or for a given type of client. So you could have a case where like, Oh, my marketing flows through AI, my legal, no, or my HR, no, or this kind of HR does it. And so you can, you can be very, um,
0: putting the power to decide in the hands of the users. Exactly. So whatever comfortable you're not trying to convince someone to be comfortable. If they're not, you're saying, Hey, if you're not comfortable with this, it's cool, right? Correct. And when you are comfortable with it, or more importantly, when your bosses are when your bosses are comfortable right. with it, then toggle it on.
1: Yeah, but it's interesting that you bring that conversation because one thing that puzzled me is like I've always thought this a lot more from like an information security perspective, from like a you know how would a chief information officer look at this thing? Mm. And um, you know, we I, I talked to a lot of people who still argue. Uh, that they're they're they don't they don't trust the cloud. They want information kept huh. in their desktops, and they're and then then it's hard, right? Because then it's an entire paradigm that needs to be argued as to why I think the cloud is safer than a desktop. Why I would trust yeah. any my information a lot more in an AWS self-encrypted bucket with a separate key than in my desktop any day. Uh, but then it's a hard conversation to take with someone because everything I'm saying is presupposing. Like I said, distrust in cloud, distrust in encryption, distrust in um, cloud services company like companies like AWS, like Azure, and like Google. And again, I know that there are a lot of people who have a lot of issues with these companies and I, I respect that. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, Mr. Fairman, we are out of time for today. Any closing thoughts? Um, where can people find more? Find more information about what you guys are doing. Anything to plug? The floor is yours.
1: <laughs> well, Tucker, th- thanks so much. Really pleasure talking to you. Very yeah. uh, always an eye opening conversation. As far as what we're doing, people can follow us on LinkedIn. People can follow us um, on our company page. We have our Merging Minds series as well that um, has a lot of interesting content weekly uh we we try to be as um thought provoking as we can with our content and really stimulate dialogue my opinion is that everybody's at least from my perspective i'm definitely learning trying to figure out what to do with this how to go with this and um if anything my main lesson i would say in 2023 was that dialogue makes things better and mm. um we are willing to listen we're really we're also willing we also want to talk but i but i think that in general if anything um I, I i would encourage people to not stay in their own camps and um and really try to create a more collaborative systemic dialogue in our space because ultimately like our industry is not an ocean, it's a pond, when you think about what the world is. yeah, And we're all a lot, we all depend on each other, we're all together, we're all cooperating in some regard. Um, and I know that, you know, it's very frequent for people to think about competitors and about threats and about... And it's, it's, a, it's a very uh, defensive mindset for the most part, I respect that. But I would say that the more that we're able to work together and try to address the bigger issues, as a community the more advances we're going to make um and i think if anything i have a lot more questions than answers and um that's what keeps me going
0: well 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 put thank you so much for coming on the show today gabriel and just to, to second that um go give him a follow on linkedin if you're watching if you're not already following gabriel follow gabriel follow bureau works um i know gabriel puts out good stuff because i follow him myself <laughs> so with that, I'll take us out of here. Ladies, gentlemen, uh, we are out of time for today. I appreciate our guest today, Gabriel Fairman. I appreciate my colleagues here at MZ Insights doing all the hard work so I can have these fun conversations. And I appreciate you, the audience, who are joining us live today. All of the dialogue and chat, which I finally remember to bring back up. Um, Michael, Susanna, uh, I saw Javi in there at some point. Rodrigo, thank you very much for joining us today and I will look forward to next time. Cheers.